This is OPI Talk, the voice of the business products industry. Hello and welcome to this episode of OPI Talk. I'm your host, Andy Braithwaite. And in this episode, we head over to the San Francisco Bay Area of the USA to speak with Steve Danziger, who is the founder and CEO of AAA Business Supplies and Interiors. And they are one of the most successful independent dealers in the USA. Good morning, Steve. Good to see you. Good morning, Andy. Nice to see you. Great. Thank you for for doing this episode of OPI Talk. Great to have you on on this episode. Just to kick off, uh, as we normally do on these types of things, perhaps a, a brief personal intro and then a quick overview of, of AAA. All right. Uh, I have been at this since junior high in the industry <laughs> and starting in the office supply industry, as it was called at the time, or stationary industry. Uh, I started AAA in 1980 from scratch, one of those traditional stories where I started out of my apartment, moved into a, an office space not too long afterwards, and we've been successfully growing it since 1980 in, in this market in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Just give us an idea of the size of your, of your dealership and perhaps yeah, who, are, who are your typical customers if there is such a thing? You bet. Uh, we're in that mid-20 million type of range, uh, dollar range in the States, uh, or that's what we've grown it to. Uh, typical customer, like many independents, we we target the mid-market customer to larger customers. Love the larger customers, but our sweet spot is mid-market, but again, enhanced by some larger pieces of business. Um, typically, we're looking at facilities managers as being a, a very uh, targeted type of contact for us. They seem to resonate with the type of value we bring to them, uh, perhaps more than some other people in larger organizations. There are some vertical markets that we also do particularly well in, but that may be geographic more than anything else. But in this market, technology, biotech, law firms, venture capital, the companies that have grown up around Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and that supports Silicon Valley tend to be higher spend companies, rapid growth companies, and companies that often are looking for the type of services and added value we can bring them versus just standard internet services or shopping. Okay, good. So mainly private se- private sector companies? Correct. We do have a, a number of counties, some state business that we work with as well. But yeah, private sector is really what we target the most. Uh, although we are looking at expanding more in the government sector as well. Okay, great. Now, the, the idea of this episode is really to try and get a feel for you know, how COVID has impacted your business, your customers' businesses, and how going forward post-COVID thing, things might be different, both for, for your dealership and then for the perhaps for the independent dealer channel as a whole. So yeah, with that, that in mind, can you take us back to 12, 15 months ago when COVID hit and what, what was the situation like in California? You bet. We, the San Francisco market was probably on the bleeding edge of responsiveness to the COVID pandemic. I think we closed before any other market in the country. Plus what we did find is our customers actually had started closing up to a month before, literally just shutting down in anticipation of being concerned about it. 
Uh, one, you know, some of the things I'll share, Andy, may or may not be projectable to other markets because of the nature of our market, the technology base, as well as the, the wealth in the Bay Area and the wealth of the type of organizations we deal with. You know, they perhaps could be more overreactive or protective mm -hmm. than call it mid-market type of business throughout the world. Uh, but what we saw is people closed down and they literally shut down dramatically. Uh, at this point for the last 16 months, we feel only about 10% of the office employees have been in offices in the Bay Area. Wow. So what we've been battling is just the fact that consumption in every category goes down dramatically when you lose 90% of your customer base being present at an office. Hmm. And that's even true today. I'd say maybe it's 15% now as it's starting to move back up. But that's been the big battle of dealing with customers, figuring out how to meet their needs with a few facilities people still report into an office, as well as to do a little hybrid work with employees who are working from home and how to morph that model. When all is said and done, our sales in this market tailed off about 30%, which given the market was down 90% in terms of office occupancy, mm -hmm. we're thrilled with our results. Never thrilled with a 30% decrease, but in consideration of 90% of our customers not being in the office, we think we did a great job at doing whatever we could to pivot and figure out what was still valuable and how can we sell our customers products that meet their transitional needs as they all figure out where to go. Okay. So you said you weren't happy with a 30% decrease, but in the context of things, it doesn't sound too bad. So how did you manage to maintain sales at that level, 70%, if you like, of, of the previous level? Yep. So, uh, from day one, we realized we were going to have to do some things radically different. Uh, I think a lot of things we experienced are no different than what many dealers experience. But the first thing we had to go through was looking at our sourcing. The products that were relevant had sold out immediately, even before we closed. Most of the common items, again, for that month before we closed, had already disappeared from the channel. So we had to source, we had to look for alternate sources for those products, as well as figure out the new products that might be relevant to customers in this situation. So I would say the first two or three months were really all about pivoting the sourcing and figuring out where to get the products at any price from any vendor under any terms that our customers would be willing to acquire. Uh, one of the interesting or ironic things we found happen and probably happened to many dealers was we would get our hands on some of these products. We would actually promote them to our customers and sell out within 30 minutes with whatever quantity <laughs> we had. So customers were thrilled with us for having products and very impressed that we might've been the only one with the products, but at the same time they were getting very annoyed that we were selling out of the products. So it was kind of an interesting double-edged sword. Yeah. There was a technology challenge there in that our system, when it sells out, doesn't automatically block the products for sale. Okay. That would have been a big help because we would have 100 people order the product and they all thought they were going to get it and we only had enough for half and we'd have to call them back later and say, sorry, you know, even though you hope to have gotten it, we weren't able to get it. So mm. that was the first thing we had to do. Uh, after we dealt with the sourcing issue, we realized that our marketing was falling far short. We needed to market very differently to our customer base, if only to tell them about the products that were available. So I would say prior to the pandemic, we used to promote perhaps once a week mm. to our customer base. And how, how would you do, and how would you do that? 
generally through through an email email shot Correct. something like that yeah we have a, pro- a program called Dynamics 365, part of the Microsoft family mm-hmm. that we use to promote, that we use their marketing module. And once the pandemic hit, we started literally promoting every day. Now, if you had asked our folks a year ago, oh, could we promote every day to our customers? They would have been appalled by that. They would have been heavily resistant. Sales, customer service, you can't do that. They'll all unsubscribe. They'll hate us. And I'll tell you, we had very few unsubscribes once we started promoting every single day because what we were promoting was relevant. People were interested in knowing what was available, whether it be existing products they wanted or new products, innovations that were available. So we radically upped our game on marketing. That included learning the technology better, using the artificial intelligence to see who was clicking, who was interested in the products that we can get out of a product like Dynamics. It also meant we had to create new marketing templates in many different formats to actually present a much broader range of information much more frequently. So again, after sourcing, we really had to up our marketing game. Hmm. Along with that, much of the marketing then pointed people back to our website for additional information on the, call it the one-page marketing we would put out there. So the website and landing pages was the next area we had to work. So we really had to put a lot of time into content development, not only for the templates and the marketing, but literally building pages on our website, putting more and better content out, leveraging video, leveraging information customers were desperately looking for, and trying to become the resource they could turn to to find that information. So again, uh, we, we probably published 100 to 200 new web pages just on product information for customers during that mm. time. Mm. So again, the, the biggest emphasis really turned to the marketing side of what we needed to do in the content. But related to that, we also had to go into our shop sites. And as you probably know, the, the shop sites we use as the independent channel are largely controlled by the wholesalers in America. Yeah, uh, they yeah. provide the core content. But given all the new products we were bringing out, we also had to then start adding a tremendous amount of content to overlay the wholesaler-based content. And in the past, we weren't as, as aggressive about doing that as we should have been. But now we had to you know, go on steroids and say, we need all this information, not only in our marketing, not only on our website of pages we release, mm-hmm. but we need it integrated fully into our shop site so people can find and learn and see the information at their fingertips, which included things like taking control of first and search mm-hmm. so we could bring the items that were in fact available to a top of search so mm-hmm. customers wouldn't see these you know, these 12 hand sanitizers are out of stock. Who cares? Let's just show them the one that's in stock at the top of their search. And so it was things of that nature that occupied us probably for the first nine months or so, 12 months of the pandemic was rebuilding all the marketing, all the content and pivoting with all the new products and innovations. Okay. On that uh, e-commerce shop site, the content side of things, how, how supportive was your wholesale partner on you on you doing those things perhaps out, outside the the normal uh, routine of, of doing things I, i'll give them a lot of credit they were doing a very good job themselves trying to source new products and as they source new products they also developed the content quickly so they understood that you not only needed the products out there or available but you needed the content for the end user hmm. uh, we are 
with our technology we use, we're an ECI house. Uh, with our technology, we can always add our own content. And we've always been able to do that. So that was just a matter of our having the bandwidth and the capability of dramatically increasing the amount of time we put into adding content for the products that the wholesaler was not bringing to market. Mm. So again, they, they really have nothing to do directly with that. It was just more about our ability to put the time and effort into developing independent content. Mm. And we can merge that with the wholesaler content. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you sounded like you were spinning quite a lot of plates there at the, at the same time. Yep. Were you doing it alone in the business, or were you you got industry partners that were that were helping you or supporting you to to improve in some of those areas that you just mentioned? Great question. Uh, in our case, probably our our own fault. We did most in house. Uh, <laughs> part of that was just the speed at which it had to be done, and the number of plates you were juggling, and the bandwidth to have the time to even coordinate with third parties to get a lot of help doing it. Uh, there were probably half a dozen of us in our organization that started wearing new marketing hats. Mm. We needed to put a lot more bandwidth against these efforts than we ever did before. Mm. And everything else was changing. The amount of time and effort in many other buckets was either shifting up or shifting down. And we just consciously made these shifts of saying, we need to collectively shift what our priorities are and work in these areas and bring as many resources to bear as possible internally. Yeah. yeah. On, on the marketing piece, you mentioned you previously had a, had a, an email, weekly email, or some, something like that. Are you using other media now that you perhaps weren't using before, video, social media to connect with your customers in different ways? Absolutely. Uh, we use LinkedIn more than we did before in terms of social postings, although we still haven't fully tapped that media. Uh, the One of the major differences in how we marketed over the last six months of the pandemic was we moved to virtual meetings with our customers. We feel there's so much new information that they don't even know they don't know. Uh, so many new things we can bring to them that even with the incessant daily marketing, customers weren't really latching on to the bigger picture of what mm. we can bring to the table. So we have probably held several hundred webinars one-on-one -on -one with our customers that last usually 30 to 60 minutes, introducing them to all the new content on our website, introducing them to the new abilities and capabilities we have to help them with planning the reopening of their office, sourcing the things they need, thinking it through, sharing market best practices. So after we dramatically doubled down on all that marketing, the traditional e-marketing we do type of, uh, of information, we also realized that unfortunately, still very often our customers were simply deleting them. They were being bombarded <laughs> by emails. Yeah. So how do we break through that? And that's where we realized we need to talk to them. We're not, be, we're not able to see them in person. So let's set up Teams meetings, Zoom meetings, whatever their technology preferred, and let's get online with them and have meaningful dialogue. And I will tell you that of everything we did at the beginning, you know, letting them know we had pandemic supplies was critical. But beyond that, in that first year, the most important thing were these webinars with actually letting people know how we could help them and how we could, again, bring best practices and solutions. Mm -hmm. And the response from customers was tremendous. They, they were, their eyes opened, 
They had no idea what we were capable of doing. After, even after an email every day telling them a story, mm. they still had no idea. They hadn't put it all together. Yeah. So I would encourage everybody to have meaningful dialogue with customers, but you have to have a story to tell. And you have to um, have to have a medium. And that's where building out the web content and having a flow of being able to tell a story and share information makes a difference. If you're just going to be there almost like a podcast, just verbally, it's not going to hold their attention as well as if you can bring them to a website, mm -hmm. show them information, uh, share videos with them, share structure, share a place they can go back for information, let them know the resources there. So that was a key differentiation that we did in the latter half of the pandemic mm. in terms of how we marketed. Sure. And something that is probably here to stay in terms of customer relationships and interacting with your customers. So your your, your sales teams are going to have to, I'm, I'm sure they, they are used to it already, but that's going to be a way of life yep. for them going forward, isn't it? Absolutely. After probably the first three months of the pandemic, when we realized we needed to start opening up this channel, uh, we spent about three months training our sales team, making them do uh, situational uh, presentations. Mm -hmm. First, we allowed them to team up so they felt like they weren't mm -hmm. on their own. But we, we spent, uh, oh, half a dozen sales meetings just practicing doing this so mm -hmm. they could get a little bit more comfortable. And at the beginning, they were collectively scared and hesitant to go down this road. But by the end, they realize it's a natural way of doing business today, mm. which is critical for where we think we have to go in the future. I think you mentioned earlier on in, in the conversation that you know, the situation is far from, from back to normal in California at the moment. Just perhaps tell us what the situation is currently in terms of the return to the office that we're, we're hearing so much about. You bet. Given we've been having all these meetings with customers, you know, it, it helps us understand what really is going on in their minds. And it is all over the board as far as what's going on in their minds. With California, California has probably been the most conservative state in the United States as far as how they've approached the pandemic. So at this point, what we're observing is the population here is almost obsessively concerned about the pandemic and about returning to the workplace, mm. perhaps more so than maybe any other market in the States, except perhaps New York, I would guess. Um, given that, employers seem to be treading very lightly in terms of how they're reopening. Many of them have already, since California opened, by the way, two weeks ago, we, they're finally allowing people to go back to the office. And less than two weeks ago, they said, and you don't have to be masked. <laughs> so they have opened this up. The, the infection rates and such are very marginal here at this point. So the safety issue, frankly, is really largely gone. But the emotional issue of changing your life, of returning to work, when many people have convinced themselves of, you know, I can work as well at home and I should be allowed to do this. And I don't want to do a commute. We're in a major metropolitan mm -hmm. area with a significant commute or where they're seeing other people move out of the area to live in a lower cost, but become a hybrid remote employee. You've got all these factors going on, as well as a fear of returning to the office, let alone I don't want to be inconvenienced mm -hmm. with returning to the office. Mm -hmm. So we see our our business space being very flexible in how they're approaching their employees. They're typically trying to just say, we're open. You're welcome to come back. We think over the next few months, we're going to see it become more of, and here are the rules of coming back. It could be, we want you back three days a week. It could be that 
if you want to keep your desk in the office, and we've heard this from a number of clients, if you want to keep a fixed location that's yours, you will have to commit to coming back four to five days a week. Mm. If you're not willing to make those commitments and you prefer the hybrid workspace, you're going to be in a hoteling situation. And so that's almost part of the leverage of getting people back. But again, the emphasis seems to be gently bringing people back, opening the door. But we have seen some companies who have already said mandatory return July 1st. Okay. Yeah. And you have to have a COVID vaccination. So we have seen yeah. everything from the, we are going back to normal and mm. get over yourselves, get over it. We're ready to go back to normal To We have some large clients who have said, we are not even going to open our offices till September of next year. Wow. That client has several thousand employees in the Bay Area. Right. So it's been all over the board, but in general, we see a, a patient reopening that will probably take about six months in our estimation to get back to whatever the new normal is. And we believe the new normal in the Bay Area will probably be 70 to 75% of people are back in the office in terms of a full-time count. Maybe 90% are coming in and out, but we feel the you know occupancy will probably be 70 to 75% when all is said and done. Right. Now, in some respects, that bodes well for us. We think furniture will do very well with reconfiguration and with also providing a different style of furniture to our customer base yeah. because they are going to look for different different scenarios uh, as far as how their office is configured. So that will be good, but we do see office supplies continuing to diminish, including uh, everything related to office supplies. Janitorial should hold its own. Mm -hmm. Break room probably died more than any other category during this period as offices closed. Yeah. But we do think break rooms are gonna come back as, as an enticement to get people back in the office. Mm -hmm. So we do think there'll be a bright, future for break room. But again, with only 70% occupancy, it's going to take break room a while to return to the type of levels it used to be at as well. So I, I think that, you know, that gives you an idea of what we're anticipating as far as the speed and the return to the new normal in the Bay Area. Okay, good. Interesting. When you look at that, that 25% to 30% of non-office occupancy, the people working from home. Is that a, an area of the market you are interested in serving or are there just too many challenges to serve that work from home market in terms of connecting with those individuals and then delivering them when they want to receive their products? I wish I had a great answer for that. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that I, we still feel it's a challenging market prop from a profitability standpoint. With the, the freight issue is pretty overwhelming to effectively service that market with a smaller order size and the freight cost to do home delivery. Mm -hmm. uh, however, we don't feel we can ignore it either. Uh, if comp we, we do think companies will start putting together more cohesive programs to service the home user. When they finally say we are a hybrid environment, as opposed to now they're still in, who are we, what are we, what are we doing? But when they finally come up with firm policies as to how the organization wants to operate, we anticipate that they are going to have to have much stronger support programs if they go down the hybrid road. They're going to have to provide the working tools according to the laws in the states. They're going to have to provide many of the, of the ergonomics, the other things that you have to provide yeah. any office employee. Mm -hmm. It will no longer be your home employee 
you take care of your home office, the home office will ultimately become an extension of the business office, we believe, with a company being responsible and liable for it, if that's the road they go down. In that case, they will probably want to set up better control systems and have purchasing centralized and standardized as far as what are those employees allowed to order? Is it going to go through an approval chain? All the things that happen when you are in one building, an office building, are going to, by extension, probably roll out to the home user. But that has not happened yet. People have not crossed that bridge. They, They are ad hoc giving someone money to buy some supplies at home, saying they can spend three or $500. There's been little control on that. But when it becomes official HR policy and official employment law of how you have to treat these folks, we do think the standards of an office environment Mm. will carry through to the home office. And we will have to have systems that in fact tie them all together and and enable the corporation to wrap their arms around it better. So that's where we're headed. So even though it still may not be a profitable piece of business comparatively, we think we need to be doing that for our clients and have a bulletproof solution for them to pursue. Yeah. Um, So an opportunity there, I think, for for many, many in the independent channel. Uh, But are your your systems set up to to handle all those approvals, processes, and, and that kind of thing? We believe so. Uh, yeah, the, to us, uh, we deal with branch offices all the time. Just think of it as a mini branch office. Mm. So it really is not that big a leap. The bigger leap is the logistics and freight issues. If someone wants a desk delivered to home and now you've got a common yeah. carrier who delivers it on a pallet, how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to facilitate returns from a home office? So it does introduce some new logistics issues. But conceptually, and from a billing standpoint, from an ordering standpoint, those are relatively easy. One thing that does need to change a little bit is the product selection. It needs to be up to corporate standards, but we may have to introduce more variety for the home, more Mm -hmm. scalable things for the home, more color for the home. So, you know, the question will be, will, will organizations allow a little bit of that personality to flow into the home environment that mm. they allow now into the break room and into their common areas, how they've tried to make the environment better and better. Are they going to make the home environment a, you get this basic stapler and that's it? Or are they going to indulge people in mm. trying to make you know, a, a comfortable home environment that's not only productive and ergonomic, but gives a little flavor for personality yeah okay good it's funny because i I imagine a lot of these california tech companies and startups are already in my mind they would have the funky furniture and more design-led items that you'd be supplying them but that that might not look out of place in in a home but uh, perhaps that's, that's not always the case a lot of traditional office furniture still still in the offices yep i'll i'll use one example we have one key client that buys all their office supplies from us, a large tech company. And we know what their budget is for food versus office supplies. They spend $100 on food for every dollar on office supplies. <laughs> okay. So to your point, the, the willingness of richer companies you know, with uh, wonderful valuations and with a, con- with a competition for employees and the amenities you give employees to actually spend a lot of extra money to be perceived as being wonderful places to work and, mm. and great people uh, may lead to 
much more indulgence for what a home office looks like than the traditional companies throughout America are willing to indulge. They may be a little bit more standard, conservative, extending the normal, but here normal is way over the top in many organizations already. Okay. Can I wrap up in a, in a minute, Steve? What's keeping you awake at night in terms of the of the issues that you need to deal with in the next, I don't know, six, 12, 18 months or so? The, the biggest concern I have is how we have to continue to morph our value and our presentation to customers to remain relevant, not only to what their new needs are going to be coming through this radical rapid change in, in the business environment, uh, but how do we tell that story to a change in personnel out there? to change in companies. So how do we move from the traditional outside sales force to a very different virtual marketing approach to a digital first approach? How do we incorporate customer journeys that are relevant and personalized to a facilities manager versus a CFO, uh, to someone who's interested in break room only? How do we identify who is possibly a target for what information? And how do we make sure that we serve the right information that is relevant to the right people in an organization? That to me is a fairly radical change from the traditional office supply model. Mm. If we look at tech companies and other industries, many of them are using best practices in terms of sales enablement and inside sales and artificial intelligence. Mm. The tools we've implemented like Dynamics give us these abilities. However, our challenge is that our size, having the intellectual capacity, the bandwidth, uh, and the experience to build out all these new marketing approaches and all the personalization. So how to really feel that inside sales team, how to feel the customer journeys, how to develop them, how to tweak them constantly, takes a much larger marketing approach. And it's going to take a learning curve to figure out how to remain relevant in the changing environment out there. So that is the biggest thing that keeps me up at night. Sure. It's, mm. it's, it's exciting. It's mm. fun. It's a wonderful opportunity, but it's a, it's a work, workload challenge yeah. to figure out how to get all that done. Okay. And a lot of your peers are in the same position. How much are you, you exchanging ideas and maybe even sharing resources with them in order, in order to get up, up to speed or, or to improve your own capabilities? That's an area where I'd say our industry is behind. There, I, we're encountering very few dealers who use a product like Salesforce or Dynamics to actually develop the ability to personalize campaigns, to think them through, to target them intelligently. Uh, so we are struggling to find other people who put a lot of time and effort into this that we can collaborate with. Mm. There's nothing I'd like more than to collaborate with other dealerships that say, yes, we've developed the different personas. We've developed vertical market appeals. We've developed, uh, you know, 12 step campaigns. We've held 20 webinars and we can cross fertilize how to, you know, what are the right steps in a webinar to get attended. Mm. And we're not finding a lot of dealers have crossed this bridge yet. We think we all have to. Mm. Uh, we think the winners will be the ones who figure out how to go to this next level, but we think we're still on the bleeding edge of what's actually happening out there. So after this podcast, if anyone hears it and is involved in the same area, please feel free to contact me. We would love to collaborate. I was just about to say the same thing. Someone might be listening to this saying, well, I can do that and we're doing that. And they're going to, they're going to reach out to you after they've listened to this. So uh, if yep. they do, then 
OPI OPI is is doing its job and is is trying is furthering the cause if you like in a, in our own little way. But, uh, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, great talking to you today. Thank you for that uh, interesting chat and all the best for the for for the rest of the year and going forward. I appreciate it and thank you for continuing to bring us the changes and the news of what's going on in our industry. It's more important than ever, I think as we've accelerated change mm. through the pandemic. You know, it, 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 the change we're going to go through normally would have taken five or 10 or 20 years, and it's been accelerated, and we need these agents of bringing us new information. So thank you for doing that. Our pleasure. Thank you, Steve. All right. If you have got this far, then thank you for listening to this episode of OPI Talk. Please check out our website, opi.net, for news, interviews, analysis, and much more from the business products world. We've also got a great app that you can download from the App Store or Google Play. Just search for OPI Magazine. And we hope you will join us again soon for another episode of OPI Talk.